You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. So my name is Vlad Tarko. Uh, I'm the author of Eleanor Ostrom, uh, an intellectual biography, and I'm co-author with uh, Pete Betke and Paul Alijika. Uh, of public governance in the classical, uh, per, from a classical liberal perspective. Uh, so a lot of my work has been related to the Ostroms. Uh, so I'm glad to interview uh, Bobby now. Um, so as far as my uh, uh, affiliation, I'm, I've been uh, connected to the Mercatus Center for quite a while now. Um, I've been a, a PhD fellow, uh, then a research fellow, and I'm still happy to be <laughs> connected to Mercatus in all sorts of ways. Uh, so from August, I'll, I'm going to be at the University of Arizona at the Department of uh, um, um, Political Economy and Moral Science. So Bobby. Hi, I'm Bobby Herzberg. I'm Distinguished Senior Fellow in the F.A. Hayek Program in Advanced Studies in philosophy, politics, and economics here at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And I, uh, I joined uh, the Mercatus Center towards the end of a long academic career that actually started at uh, Indiana University, my very first job uh, with the Ostroms, uh, Lynn Ostrom as my uh, boss and uh, as department head at that time at Indiana University in political science. And so I think that's uh, one of the things that brings me here today to talk about character I very much uh, appreciate over the years. So I want to ask you about your personal experiences with the, the workshop in Indiana and with the Ostroms. So one of the things that is striking about Eleanor Ostrom is her rise, both in the department, uh, within the public choice society, and within the economics profession, all the way to getting the Nobel Prize. So can you tell us more about her? And yeah, she was, a, was an amazing woman um, with a very interesting career path, uh, in part because she w it was such an early time to have accomplished all that she was able to accomplish in the field of political science and political economy. Uh, I joined the political science department with Lynn as a department head in 1982. And um, from that point forward, we were colleagues at the workshop and in the department. Uh, but she was also my boss, so we had that uh, going for it. But she was an incredible role model um, from the very first time um, I interacted with them. And uh, I could not have asked for a better role model. In part, finding a woman of that great accomplishment who had achieved those uh, that accomplishment 
during a time when women were very rare in the fields that she was working, the fields of political economy and public choice, uh, was uh, an incredibly lucky find for me. And it was part of the reason why I accepted the job at Indiana University. I did have other offers at the time, but what I found in going there was the fact that they had some women on the faculty made it a much more inviting and wonderful place to be. And Lynn always worked to make that possible for women and men. She was very open and um, very friendly and uh, very clever and worked extremely hard. And so when people will say, well, how do you accomplish this kind of level of success in a discipline, uh, I think you're born into it first, uh, that not everyone will be able to achieve the level of success that Eleanor Ostrom was able to. Part of that is just sheer talent. But the second part that I think many of us could do um, and accomplish a great deal is the incredible hard work. Lynn woke up every morning around 2, 3, 4 o'clock, depending on uh, what her rest of her day looked like, and started working. And she did most of her research and writing uh, before most people were up. Um, and so she would, you would get uh, emails from her once email came around. Yes, there was a time when that was not. Otherwise, you'd get memos from her. And they would be dated and timed, and you would see they were written at 3 a.m. in the morning or whatever, and that's when she started her day. The other part was she had such an optimistic and positive attitude that other women that might have faced the kinds of things that Lynn did early in her career um, might have been discouraged by it. But instead, Lynn took it as, well, that's just the way it is, and what do I need to do to make it different for me and my family and, and uh, the people at the workshop? And so she optimistically just took it on and uh, would gather as many good people together, get them on her team. Um, she was great organizer, the most incredible organizer. Um, and people recognized that. And she had opportunities as a woman. By the time we get into the 1980s, people are recognizing that there are no women around in these top senior positions in academe, and that meant there were opportunities for the most qualified of them. But you also had to be that qualified, and that was very hard to do and to have the traditional career that women also had in the home as mothers and, and uh, wives, et cetera. And so for Lynn to do this as a spouse made it um, a pretty impressive thing. When I arrived there, she had was just becoming the president of the Public Choice Society, and I think that was one of her very first um, academic positions of uh, influence. Vincent had been an earlier president of the Public Choice Society. And so when uh, Lynn came along, it was a, a pretty obvious uh, selection. But many people did question whether or not it was time for Lynn Ostrom. But she was just so good at it, it was, uh, she would settle most of those kinds of questions. 
Uh, then she went on to also be the president of the Midwest Political Science Association and uh, the American Political Science Association. And then, of course, we, we know about her accomplishments in the field of economics as well and the Academy of Sciences. Yeah, she was joking that she's a, an al a workaholic. <laughs> so <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> She was a workaholic. Both she and Vincent were workaholics. So was that difficult to... So I, yes. I assume that <laughs> she also had expectations for others that were very high. Yes, it was true. She did have, but she was kind, and she understood that not everybody made the choices that she made to, to have basically an intellectual life as her life, and everything centered around that intellectual life. And of course, for Vincent, that was very much his perspective as well. And so that fit in a way that it might not have fit had she had a different spouse who was not uh, equally committed uh, to this work life. But yes, no one else, um, I would say, no one else I ever encountered around Lynn was up to the level of accomplishment uh, that Lynn was, uh, in part because she was she knew as a woman early on in her field that she had to be as good as every man around her in the field and better than them on some dimensions in order to justify them giving her a position as opposed to someone else. And I think she saw that as something she could do. Um, mostly, I think it was her ability to do um, this kind of organizational things, like being a department head, being a great administrator, hiring excellent people and getting them totally committed to work for you nonstop. Um, which she did with the staff at the workshop. Um, and combining that with her intellectual prowess, I mean, that's rare. Usually someone that intellectual and analytical is rather incompetent <laughs> in the areas of administration and sort of taking care of making sure the trains arrive on time. But Lynn had incredible skill in both of those. Yeah, so when we're reading her stuff, she strikes you as such an analytic person, like taking hundreds of case studies and creating a language that encompasses all of them. So that's quite a, an analytic mind there. So then, at the same time, the same person is this super social person that creates this international organization, right? Because it's not just the workshop at Indiana, it's now a gigantic, global uh, network, and she was instrumental in building that. So that's quite extraordinary. It is an extraordinary, and she was extraordinary at those things. She could bring people together. Um, part of it was she was very collaborative. Honestly, I do believe her gender helped her in that regard. Most people think it's a, a terrible detriment, and certainly in terms of opportunities, available uh, if she faced much greater obstacles than a, a, 
man would have at the time. However, because she faced those and she did it without getting discouraged by it, she ended up being a coalition builder and very collaborative. Uh, she also was very good at sharing credit with other people. So um, people like to feel like they're important and they're brought in. Uh, she was an incredible mentor for young people uh, because she was motherly. Uh, she would work with people and she would make, they would go to some of their male faculty members who would be very harsh in their criticism and they would come to Lynn and she would explain why that was an important aspect that they needed to incorporate, but do it in a way where you thought your mom might do it. Um, that's an incredible skill set to combine, as I say. So, Yeah, so uh, a lot of time people with that kind of accomplishments also develop a super ego. So that she never like did. <laughs> she no, and in fact, one of the things early on when I was at um, IU and things were kind of crazy there in terms of the politics and uh, some of the academic things that were going on, you know, uh, Lynn sat down with me and she said, "You know, Vincent and I have always had other career plans. We always knew that we would." be fine no matter what because we would go and ma make furniture. She says, we love making furniture and if we can't do this, and she honestly at various times in her career thought they might not be able to be academics because of the nature of the beast. It's hard to imagine that for me, that a person of her scholarship and skill would not be a part of a profession, but they realized at any given time uh, they had faced that in the past. And so they would make furniture. And there was something about her willingness to see every human being that she interacted with as a human being and accomplished and working that I think made her every man, so to speak, every person. <laughs> can't say it now that way, but, um, and that drew people to her because they never felt like she was lording her accomplishment over them. She always included them in the discussion. When she sat around, I think when she came to GMU, actually, one of the stories I've heard when she came here right after she'd won uh, the Nobel Prize, she still fulfilled her her commitment for a week with students and things, she sat there and listened to what the students were working on. She didn't spend the hour, here's what you need to know from me. It was, what can I learn from you and how can I help you bring that to fruition? And I think she treated everyone that way. So most people found that because we have egocentric perspective on these things. Uh, most people are very, um, flattered uh, by someone wanting to pay attention. And I think that's maybe she learned that from her gender and early on having to play that role of making things comfortable, making a nice home, being a good social 
uh, person, and she combined that with her incredible intellectual prowess, and it was a it was dynamite. So usually, um, public choice is described as having this kind of free schools of thought, the Virginia School, the Bloomington School, and the Rochester School. So uh, the Rochester School being more of hardcore, rational choice. So when you first came to Bloomington, you were coming from that hardcore, rational choice of a, a school of thought. So how was the adjustment? And It was uh, a big adjustment. I understood Lynn from the get-go. I did not understand any of Vincent because I'd had virtually no training in political philosophy or those types of methods. And um, so he was much harder for me to understand, always extremely kind. But what I realized, if I, was, if I were going to be a colleague and understand and be able to give them criti criticism on their work, et cetera, I really needed to understand a lot more. So I felt like I was going back to be a student again. Um, I saw the linkages between the rational choice approach. Incentives matter, individuals matter, information matters, and institutions matter. Those were all things that were core to the Rochester School as well, and they were things that very much were being taught and pressed in the workshop. Um, Lynn Ostrom and I uh, team taught the um, micro-level uh, workshop seminar each year, and Vincent Ostrom did the macro. And as I say, I was comfortable in the micro and understanding where Lynn was coming from and could see how she linked into my work. But learning how Vincent's work linked into it that's where I had to spend quite a bit more time. And over time, I realized how important what they were doing really was and felt like I had to commit that time to do it rather than to do my own work on the side just in as a compatible feature of the workshop. I felt like I needed to integrate my own work. And I think it's been very good for me. I've I've loved it, and it's why I find being at GMU and Mercatus Center um, so comfortable because it also sees the linkages between the sort of analytic, um, careful, um, documented work and these large theoretical ideas that have been passed down historically and how we can bring those together and try to combine an even stronger uh, theory. And I think Lynn was that bridge. She's the bridge that connected both sides together. And so now you saw people like Ken Shepsley wanting to work with Lynn Ostrom and, and bringing Lynn Ostrom in, but then them coming and interacting with Vincent and um, her helping to make Vincent more accessible, um, we saw that with students. Students would come and they would love working with Lynn. Uh, many came to want to work on the ideas Tocqueville, federalism, etc., that Vincent was doing, but found him 
pretty hard to understand and uh, pretty dense. And so Lynn would provide that, um, almost a translator <laughs> to the language. It was pretty, pretty fun to see how it was. And also that encouragement that if you're going to be a part of this, you need to learn to do these things and you need to interact. One of my favorite ways that they did that was in the mini-conference that we held in the department each year. Instead of presenting your own work like you did at most academic conferences, someone else presented your paper as a friendly presenter, as if they were trying to do it as, as close to the what you'd written as possible. And then they'd trade hats They'd put on their critique hat, and they would do a, um, a discussant role. And so often, Lynn and Vincent Thole, in their papers that they would be presenting at the mini-conference, would ask one of the newer students to be that presenter and discussant. And you can imagine the ones that got Vincent especially would say, what am I going to do? I have no idea what this is about. And how to do it and he's scary and uh, but he loved when they would take him on and would be very critical and Lynn would help them understand that and so again having the sense of a workshop a flat surface where we're apprenticing one with another rather than over another was so critical to the way that they interacted uh, with students and um, Vincent had that as his core belief, and Lynn operationalized that to make it actually work for students at college. Yeah, so Vincent also had this reputation of being somewhat abrasive in seminars, and when people would come to present something there, he would puzzle them <laughs> with weird questions. Yes, he would often ask these questions that they couldn't comprehend what he was asking. It wasn't that they didn't want to answer the question, it's that he might use words or jargon that he had developed that he understood but that were not generally well known at the time. Or he might sort of tap in immediately into a tough puzzle and they hadn't the two-year background on this puzzle. So when he asked the question, they had no idea of the context. And so they'd look at him a little bit befuddled. And um, Lynn would often serve, again, that bridge in those to, to make sure that whatever speaker came, that they understood and could... Um, um, could maybe translate what kind of question into whatever the uh, technique or approach that the um, visitor was taking. And she would go back and forth in that way with Vincent and uh, visitors. And so everyone loved her and um, wanted to work with her. Um, I also want to ask you about the connections between their uh, approach to institutions and the uh, Douglas North approach. So they were very friendly, but at the same time, in the works per se, you don't see that much of a connection. Uh, and also, when you look at 
Doug's North career, it sounds like he started from a very rational choice perspective and moved towards Vincent's approach to institutions. Uh, I think that's right. I think over the years, especially as the more mathematical rational choice theory approach um, to institutions started to sort of take over in um, political science and in political economy, um, North provided uh, a different kind of approach to that, and so did the Ostroms and the Bloomington School. And so as a result, you saw them sort of getting together more in terms of fighting for the importance of institutions and the importance of rules and the importance of um, good empirical work. Because many who were working in the rational choice tradition thought empirical work was unnecessary. You also saw this in experimental economics. Um, people in uh, economics would often press back against Vernon Smith and, and others in that tradition and say, uh, and Charlie Plott, for example, and say, why do we need to test this? We've demonstrated with our theory that it must be true. There is no need for us to then do an analytic test of this in the laboratory. But for the Ostroms, it was very much a three-part uh, approach to every question. It was theory. You develop this kind of theory that was consistent often with the type of theory that was being done in the rational choice school. But that wasn't enough. You also needed to be focused on doing laboratory experiments to refine that theory. Because often with real humans, they are not the assumptions that we make. How could we make better assumptions and make the theory stronger? But then that wasn't enough because even then people might not comply with those assumptions. We may be wrong in the way that we've characterized an institutional rule, so it was necessary to go out into the field. And they always saw those three parts as interacting constantly, feedback loops from each into the other. So you were never really done. Well, that, I think, is very consistent with the way North also did his work in history. He would look for these historical explanations that could justify changes that had taken place and understand how the development of these kinds of institutional rules could lead to very different outcomes. But that requires really getting at all those different parts in the same way, that analytic framework, the theory starting with that so that it provided you the discipline to look at a rich historical body of work and empirical findings and know what to pick out and know that you're not just cherry-picking um, the data at some point. So I think they found that very compatible with the way in which they approach these things. Okay, so we have a few more minutes. Uh, so I want to ask you about the history of the workshop, the conference that happens every five years, gathers so many people who work in this uh, uh, tradition. So how did that get organized? And well, I think, um, first of all, the workshop was a very special place. 
as I said, uh, they designed it with the idea of the uh, wood shop that they used, uh, the workshop that they used to go to to do build furniture and the apprentice model. And uh, they worked with uh, an old woodworker that was a high craftsman. And they'd go out and made all the furniture in their house, basically. These beautiful, incredible tables. And what they saw was that he could see things in the wood that they couldn't see. But by working next to him, they could develop some of those skills. And that's what they wanted to do in academe. And so that's why they named it the workshop. It's why it had the flat structure that we talked about from before where um, you are immediately a participant in it. You don't have a period where you're not contributing to it. You start contributing from day one. Um, yes, in an apprentice way, but it's not as if you're doing training and then you're going to be a participant. Uh, you are a participant while you train. And so you're trying to see things through the lens. And so what that did over time was make people very committed to this, almost as a family. And they were a bit separated from the departments and in the university. Um, they were not always in favor. As I mentioned earlier, um, Lynn thought maybe they would not be doing academic work. They might have to go and find other work. They always knew that they would find something and that they would continue uh, to be happy. So as a result, people formed strong bonds. We did a lot of social activities together. There was uh, a long uh, history of the workshop families. And so as the workshop went on decade after decade, people wanted to have a reunion type of experience, a family type of experience. And so um, they started as Vincent was retiring. Now, Vincent retired, was going to retire for many years. <laughs> he was first going to retire in the 1980s, um, uh, but then was uh, given the Bentley chair and continued on um, to work past his 65th birthday and uh, well into um his late 80s, he was still very active member and participating in the workshop. And so uh, because of that, those retirement times uh, bring opportunities for getting back together and reliving and thinking about what you've contributed and so on. So as both of them were aging into that period of time, we would have these celebrations. and. Eventually, that was institutionalized into the workshop on the workshop, or WOW. And the first WOWs were with the Ostroms and all there. And then the later WOWs were as Vincent retired, and then it was just Lynn. And then Lynn retired from the workshop um, administrative role, and it was taken over with Mike McGinnis and Jimmy Walker. And then it was a way of, again, reliving these past. And so every five years now, even though they passed in uh, 2012, they both passed away, uh, we now do a workshop on the workshop where it's a bit of a family reunion. People come back. 
students of people come back who've never were at the workshop but are working in this tradition and we see where the scholarship has gone. So the idea is if you're going to have a workshop reunion, it had to be an intellectual reunion. And so it's a full-fledged conference. This year, the workshop on the workshop six will take three days of meetings and panels and, and presentations and papers and so on just from all of the tradition that has come out of that. Thank you, Bobby, for your time. It's been such a great conversation. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.